You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 76 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. Today, we will hear some more from... Pico Rivera, California, where a Walmart store was shut down unceremoniously recently. And you've probably been following the news coming out of Baltimore, where protests have kicked off since the death of Freddie Gray in police custody. We'll hear from a worker from Baltimore as well. But first, happy May Day. May 1st is, of course, a special day to us here at Belabored because it is International Workers' Day. And today, May 1st, in solidarity with the growing movement against police violence, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10 in the Bay Area is using its monthly stop work meeting to idle the ports of Oakland and San Francisco in protest of recent police killings. Stacy Rogers, an executive board member of the ILWU Local, joined us to explain why the union decided to take this action. We, the IOW Local 10, that I made a motion in an executive board meeting um, a couple weeks back, and the motion was to support the ILA International Longshore Association Local 1422 in Charleston, South Carolina, and any efforts they may bring about concerning the death of Walter Scott. And Walter Scott is um, a close family member of some Charleston, South Carolina longshoremen. And our local, Local 10 of the ISWU and Charleston ILA Local 1422 have um, close connections and have supported each other throughout actions throughout the years. Um, so that's where the emotion, the emotion, I'm sorry, the emotion originated and out of that, and then there was a friendly amendment to the motion um, stating that we have a hold our monthly stop work meeting on May 1st, which is International Workers' Day and May Day, and have a rally in protest at Oscar Grant Plaza, um, Oakland City Hall, basically. And that's where it came from. And tomorrow we expect a family-friendly turnout we have other unions and um, lots of community groups joining with us to protest the police terror going on throughout the nation. I just felt it was important that labor stood up and called out this nation on what's going on with our policing. And um, labor has been quiet up until this point. And we're all workers, basically, whether or not we're union, non-union, or entrepreneurs, we're, or even unemployed. We're still working towards employment and working towards living in this country. So um, that's where it came from, and that's pretty much um, what we're doing and why we're doing it tomorrow, and, and to protest these senseless murders, of, particularly mainly in brown and black police and um the ILWU has a long tradition. I mean, we've always protested social and racial injustices throughout the years, and going back to our formation and the big strike of 1934 and throughout history in South Africa, fighting apartheid, and uh, more recently, the uh, port shut down in protest of the Oscar Grant killing by the Park Police. The, what we do, our industry, we are longshoremen. What we do moves commerce. I mean, we we move world commerce, and 
when commerce is disrupted, nine times out of ten, the the listening ears are more attuned to the problems. And I, it's not to say it solves everything overnight, disrupting commerce, but it is a huge voice in what we do. And no, we, we don't want to just arbitrarily disrupt anything. We want to work. We believe in working and, and making our way in this country. However, this country is doing some detrimental things to our communities, and it's about time everybody stands up and says something. And now for an update on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the behemoth trade deal that is slowly being shepherded through Congress and being negotiated largely in secret. If you have been following the news on it lately, it's been wending through Congress as uh, Obama guns for fast-track authority, which would basically let the executive branch negotiate the trade deal and then turn it over to Congress for an up or down vote, basically accelerating the process and making the process even more opaque than it already is. So uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a gigantic trade deal involving 11 other Pacific nations, covering about 40% of worldwide economic output. And due to secret negotiations, we know remarkably little about it. But among other things, it would grant Big Pharma more power to increase the cost of medicine, control patents, and keep generic medicines off the market. It might also loosen restrictions on certain food labeling requirements, opening the door to more GMO foods in our supermarkets. Um, Many uh, critics have come down on its power to undermine labor standards and environmental regulations because it gives corporations such outsized power. So as we watch Uh, Congress to see what happens. You can be sure that there will be many advocates in the streets um, trying to block it from going through, but at the very least, they should let it be open to Congress for a debate. And if you want to learn more about the TPP, you can listen to Belabor Number 73, where we talk to Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO about this deal. And speaking of ports and trade and all of the things that come in and out of this country, For more port action this week, port truckers in California once again are on strike at the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and San Diego. The strikes began this Monday at four different port trucking companies. And for those of you who aren't longtime listeners, the port truck drivers are non-union and are classified as independent contractors by these companies, meaning that while they do a lot of hard work, they have to pay for their own trucks and miscellaneous other costs of doing business, meaning that their paychecks are often very, very small. These drivers have been taking action since 2012, including several lawsuits that have found the drivers to be illegally misclassified and owed back wages for their work. In other words, victims of massive wage theft. They are being supported by the Teamsters Union in these actions, and this week's strikes have included ambulatory pickets at secondary targets, including Toyota, and they also haul goods for Walmart and elsewhere, but they were joined on the picket lines by workers from Walmart's Pico Rivera store, about which you will hear more on today's show. And in another strike story, I think that's three strike stories. Who's striking? It's a record. (laughs) Strike three. Um, Federal contract workers went on strike last week. uh, They went on a one-day strike, um, and uh, they staged protests at the Capitol, actually. And the point was to build on the success of previous strikes that they had demanding higher wages. Now they're upping those demands and demanding a full $15 an hour and union rights aligning with the broader uh, low-wage worker movement 
movement that is calling for, uh, that calls itself Fight for 15 and is demanding $15 an hour across the board. Um, the target of the campaign is also to basically uh, hold the federal government accountable for these contracts that it doles out to huge corporations to then turn around and sponsor extremely low-wage jobs that make it impossible for many of these workers to survive. By raising the minimum to $15 an hour, it would actually uh, bring their salaries closer to a living wage, and it would also help raise labor standards across the board because, um, you know, as we know, during the New Deal, the federal government was actually responsible for raising labor standards through its contracting deals and through its public works projects. Um, unfortunately, has done a full reversal, and according to Demos, uh, the federal government spending programs are now worth about two million low-wage jobs across the country. That's bigger than Walmart and McDonald's if you count the number of low-wage workers that uh, their dollars support. So um, it was a one-day strike, and now uh, the pressure is on Obama to uh, do another executive action, as he did previously, to raise their wages once again. And now we're going to go to Baltimore, where protests have been roiling um, uh, against police brutality. And uh, increasingly, the calls are for some form of economic justice. Um, and we're going to talk now to uh, United Workers, which is a low-wage worker human rights organizing group. The uh, organizer I spoke with is Todd Cherkis, and he had some interesting things to say about the background and the backdrop to the protests you've been seeing uh, in the news and what it means for Baltimore and what it means for the nation as a whole. So, I mean, right now, we've got leaders in all over the city, from like Ground Zero, where the riots started yesterday, to all the way over to East Baltimore and and up Central and, and Southern Baltimore as well. So we've been connecting with our leadership throughout the day and doing some work in the community. We've been doing cleanups, and we are um, organizing an economic jo- justice walk um, through the community to talk about these deeper issues that are kind of just below the surface, that if this story is, is seen as just kids doing something bad and a more of a law and order issue when there's these deeper inequality issues in Baltimore that have been going on for a very, very long time. And so folks in the community are kind of, we're, we're doing some interviews with some of our members to get their perspective and posting them on social media. And then we're organizing a leadership meeting tomorrow of all of, of leaders from across the city pastors, residents, homeowners, homeless leaders from throughout our network are coming together tomorrow night to really dig deeper about the meaning of this moment, this crisis point, and this call for reconciliation in the community that we're hearing, this this need to resolve these issues and to get some action on them. And so that's tomorrow night, and then we're going to be hosting economic justice walks throughout the community on Thursday and Friday in Western and Eastern Baltimore. But, you know, the thing is, this is, these are deep issues. And so we've been really focused on the housing crisis for a very long time, the jobs crisis, the environmental justice crisis for a long time. And when we see the mayor or governor Hogan, there's this history with these, with these, these, these politicians and this system and the leadership that they represent that have, you know, put the most polluting environmental hazards in low-income communities in Baltimore 
for a very long time, and he pushed a horrible um, housing policies that have really pushed out a lot of residents and torn down lots of parts of Baltimore. And then you've got that you have jobs, and you know where this crisis happened, um, where where it kind of flared up in Gilmore Homes. A lot of our members have lived in Gilmore Homes, and they're day laborers who work at Camden Yards cleaning the stadium. And you know we fought and won the campaign for a living wage there. But, you know, you go and you work a job and, and it doesn't make a lot of money, then you end up in a community that doesn't have a lot of resources. And, and we see, you know, since this current administration, a lot of rec centers have closed, including up in that area, Harlem Park's rec center closed. Um, and then you got school closings. Um, and then you've got, on top of that, this jobs crisis where there's, there's the jobs that the city produces are low-wage service sector jobs, tourism jobs at the harbor where you can't really make it. And there's this this kind of boiling point. And so there's 40,000 vacants in Baltimore that are depressing people's communities. And we're fighting to make sure that there's community investment to, uh, we want hundreds of millions of dollars in public bonds to make sure that those that those properties get, get transformed into community land trusts so the communities have control over these properties and are turned into affordable housing. And, it's those kinds of initiatives that really, really change this dynamic and really move the needle on inequality that we're, you know, we've seen this isn't just Baltimore, obviously, this is all over America, this inequality. We're seeing it in suburban counties, we're seeing it in rural counties in Maryland, and we're seeing it here in the city. This really big decline in, in living standards and people really struggling, really struggling. We've got, we got people out in the county in these suburban counties that are working two or three jobs too and are fighting around paid sick leave issues. And we've got people in southwest Baltimore that are fighting around uh, the largest trash burning incinerator that would come in and dump a lot of mercury and lead on the in the air. So we've got these are not just just Baltimore City, inner city issues, but deep issues across the state um, that we're trying to address. And this is a legacy. This isn't just one mayor or one day or one cop killing, this is ongoing struggle for years. And when you take all the community money that's out there, public bonds, HUD money, and you take it and you use it to build the Inner Harbor hotels and the Inner Harbor and these kind of playgrounds for, for well-to-do folks, and you let the neighborhoods just kind of decline and go grow abandoned with all these abandoned houses, um, it's it's a struggle for even safety. I was one of our leaders doesn't live that far away from the CVS that got burned. He used to talking about just getting lights on. They're all neighbors in the dark. So once it gets dark, it is pitch black in that community because there's no lights on. They're all they're all gone. And and the mayor just announced twenty five thousand people are going to have their water cut off because they can't pay their water bill. Because yeah. The Department of Public Works, in part, you know made some very complicated deals on Wall Street that resulted in a lot of bad debt. And we've got a huge crisis around water, around housing, these basic ne- and then these basic needs. How do you see economic inequality intersecting with police brutality and how crime is treated? Um, do you see a similar pattern, say, as we saw in, uh, for instance, Ferguson, um, there was actual, you know, outright sort of extortion of the local community through policing. 
do you see similar issues or is it more of just a holistic kind of a social alienation issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we've seen from our, our members and just talking over the last, you know, couple of years, but, in, you know, we've been around for almost 15 years, the reality of, of being stopped by the police and frisked and the racism that's systemic in, in, in the police approach for the last, you know, and this is just, it's race, there's obviously a poverty issue associated with that too, and then and then there's these real divisions around safety in the community, and so we see it as very similar to, I mean, when Martin O'Malley was, was mayor, he took up this kind of broken windows, Giuliani approach, and that's this legacy. So you've got the war on drugs, failures, and then you've got this broken windows approach that, that O'Malley took from Giuliani in New York and just kind of went to town. And so we've got just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people in the city that have rec- criminal records, and then it, it makes it so much harder to find work and so we see this as as a way of dividing and conquering the low-income communities, and we see it as a as a way to divide people uh, based on on status. And and so you've got a lot of fear based on that and perception about crime in the city. And some of it, so much of this is a war on drugs, and so much of it is just racist cops. And that really compounds these issues. So it's like it's. You know, it's economic inequality, it's racism, and, you know, in a city like Baltimore, where we're seeing this eruption, it's kind of the riots that we're not really addressing these issues in a systemic way. And around policing, I mean, we can look at a lot of other cities. Um, There's a lot that needs to get done to make the community really in charge of this public service called policing and safety. And when when it comes down to it, the police are not transparent, they're not accountable to the community, and they... They police in a way that exacerbates systemic racism, period. And and that has to be addressed in some capacity. And we just haven't seen that from our leadership, even wanting to take that on in any other way. Despite spending hundreds of millions of dollars over the years in payouts for all the all the abuses that folks have have experienced. What do people generally think of uh the police in their neighborhoods? Um in a lot of um, areas that are the most heavily policed, you see both people with genuine concerns about crime and safety and also people who feel like the police are, are actually more hostile to community members than um, focused on the real problems. I, this, you know, we're a human rights organization, and so the way that our folks have seen this is like, look, we don't want to sacrifice one human right for another. All of human rights are indivisible. We don't want to sacrifice our safety for over policing and you know or flip it and have safety but but then have no you know it is we can't you have to have both and if, if cops are coming to our communities and are locking people up needlessly that doesn't make our community safer and on the other hand we need we need to have safe communities and we're not right now our communities aren't safe and that's you know in large measure because we've got police coming out here and thinking they can murder people and not be held accountable for it. That's a huge issue, and folks feel terrorized. It's got to be dealt with. You have an ongoing uh, fair development campaign. Can you talk about the kind of development you think is is needed, and also just in light of the aftermath of what you see going on now, um, has that been set back at all, or how do people feel about rebuilding now? Yeah, so I think it's a little too soon to know 
like what's going to happen next in terms of rebuilding some of these burned structures. But it, it was it's definitely devastating to watch because um, I know how hard our communities have fought for the the meager resources that we have. Like a, the CVS that was burned yesterday is a real resource. A lot of our members live around there. This is the floor they go to get their 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 prescription drugs, and and now they're really concerned about that, right? Rightfully so. I know Mondawmin Mall was just redeveloped not that long ago. And so to have that looted is tragic. I mean, this community, um, can, you know, this is a, that, that mall, the shopping center is a big resource and to have that looted is just, is, is, is devastating. Our campaign around development is, is looking at the roots of the issues and looking at how can we change the way we think about development so that it meets people's needs. For 40, 50 years, it's been a very much trickle-down system where we give all of our public wealth, public subsidies, tax breaks, land giveaways, to the wealthiest developers to build high-end luxury condominiums and uh, waterfront development and, and hope that some of that those benefits kind of trickle down into the community through jobs, et cetera. And this, is, this was supposed to replace the decline in industrial jobs that we saw in starting in the mid seventies or even, even in the sixties. And that has not worked. That has failed miserably. Now we know from our work at Camden Yard and then our organizing at Inner Harbor that a lot of the jobs at the Inner Harbor are low wage jobs, tourism jobs. They're seasonal. So after the, the summer season, when the weather's nice, um, the Inner Harbor is a dead zone basically. And so these jobs, that we're supposed to replace good union jobs are non-union poverty jobs that don't really have any benefits or any real job security period. And so that's what we're left with. And so our communities are, are have been kind of the wealth of the waterfront has been extracted and are leaving us with very little. And so what we're asking the city and we're demanding of the city through our, you know, our, our housing work, our work around jobs and our work around environmental justice is that we take a step back on development. When we spend tax dollars on development, and we make sure that those monies are to benefit everybody in the city, not just one community. That's the number one. Two, that development meets people's needs. It's based on need. So when we do development, we have a housing crisis. And when we when we think about development, we want to make sure that all communities have the be- the benefit of affordable, safe, good housing, not just one neighbor over another, which is how it works now. And then there's three of our, of our fair development principles that are, are really about the process and about strengthening democracy. What you see out there with the riots and the demonstrations is a hunger for democracy, a hunger for, for a voice in the community and a voice and to be heard, quite frankly. And we are calling for processes around development that are transparent, open to the public, that are accountable to the community and that are participatory. So transparent, meaning that we we see the deals, the contracts, the agreements that are made, they're open to the public and public scrutiny, participation, that real community input into the decision-making is, is a part of the process. And then three, and there's accountability. A lot of claims get made about these development projects that never bear any fruit. So a whole community in East Baltimore gets demolished because Johns Hopkins is building a biotech park in development, and there's a promise of jobs. Well, that's been an abject failure. 
But there's no accountability. There's no pushback on that. So they relocated dozens of residents in that area and have gentrified that community and with the promise of jobs, and that's been a total failure. Uh, but there's no conversation about that in the city. Um, and so we, we are pushing with our fair development campaign, with our labor partners, our faith partners, a new way of thinking about development that really takes this economic inequality head on and actually does something about it, takes those steps to really create living wage jobs, to create affordable housing, to create environmental justice. We're working with the city right now on a major solar farm initiative that would transform Curtis Bay, which is a heavily polluted area. We're working on a resource recovery park to, to eliminate our landfills, but to create really good jobs with recycling and the use technologies. So there's, there's, there are things to be done around this that can be to push forward, but the city's got to wake up and listen. It seems like you've gotten at least a little bit of a response on some of the development projects that you're pushing. Um, what do you think about sort of just politics in Baltimore in general? I think many people were surprised uh, to see the uprising happening in a city supposedly with, you know, because it has a black mayor. Um, they didn't expect to see such a racial tension breaking out. Uh, what, what do you think, you know, from the ground there, how do people interface with the political system every day. Yeah, I mean, I can, I'll can. i give you an example. So with our incinerator campaign, we have a human rights committee in a high school in Curtis Bay. And that high school, um, that group, was looking into these issues of development in their community and found that the nation's largest trash-burning incinerator was permitted to be built less than a mile from their school. And there's, there's, there's laws on that that are not supposed to be able to do that, but they, they got around that through technicalities to be able to build this thing less than a mile away in the, in the part of Baltimore that is the most polluted in terms of air quality in the state. This part of town is, has horrible toxic air. There's already an incinerator there. There's all kinds of industry. There's a coal uh, way station there, a lot of coal dust, a lot of asthma issues. And so when students found out about this, they went, they also found out that the school board, the city of Baltimore, and 20 other municipalities and, and school systems from around the region had committed to buying their energy from this trash-burning incinerator, including their own school system. And so we went and we asked for the contract, the energy contract. The students had to pay for this contract, hundreds of dollars to see it, and then all the relevant financial information was blacked out on the contract. And then went from there to the school board, and we said, this is a problem. And finally, after a year of organizing on this, the school board and the city and nine and seven other entities have already decided to end their support for the trash burning incinerator. But that took a huge fight just to get that, that push forward. And at every turn, we, students were learning how not transparent the whole system is. Like when we go door to door in Curtis Bay, people don't know that there's this project that's being permitted to be built there. No one knows it they could have the largest trash burning incinerator in the country built in, in their neighborhood because it's not something that people are talking about from the city, the leadership there. So the lack of transparency is really a problem. And then the other, I think, I think people just kind of intuitively know is that our, when there comes time to making a decision around jobs, around living wage, around these kind of really core kind of meat and potato issues, kitchen table issues, the mayor always seems to decide with the wealthy interest. 
So when it came to Harbor Point, which was the, the, the biggest development project since the Inner Harbor, basically. So that, like, two years ago, there's a big push to have a development project along the water just east of, of the Inner Harbor. This is hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks and giveaways. They were going to spend as much money in that one neighborhood on their parks and park and park construction more than the entire city combined in a year. So all the money that we spent on parks and recreation in Baltimore for like construction of parks, they're spending in that one community in one year. And the mayor put it through. We there was protests every week in this city on that on the, on this development project. We asked for guarantees on living wage, on local hiring. And she said, the mayor said to the public in the public that she felt like mandating even local hiring was against the law. And that we could not that people could not ask for that of their publicly subsidized development. So we see when there's big decisions to be made around development and public funds, around jobs and around parks and other issues, she's always sided with the wealthy interests and not in these communities that you're seeing um, erupt. And so that's felt. That's felt in a very real way. I mean, we saw the, at Freddie Gray's funeral, uh, she didn't get much of a response. Now, the former mayor got a standing ovation, but she didn't get much of a response. So when we talk to our own members, there's a deep, deep distrust of the mayor and of just the system. They see it being really rigged for the wealthy. Has there been a pronounced response from the labor movement down there or from organized labor or worker groups like yours? Are you kind of um, on your own there? or And what do you think is, is the role that the labor movement might play in terms of mobilizing people or trying to create something positive out of this crisis? That's a great question. So we're in, in a founder, uh, a co-founder of a coalition called One Baltimore that's made up of, of almost every union in the city and a lot of community groups and a lot of faith groups as well. And so we've been talking more internally about plans for um, some public comments and um, some public activities uh, among our labor um, allies. Um, so on this fair development question, unions have really, really come forward and have been pushing on the water privatization issue to push back on the city's plans to privatize the water and cut water for 25,000 residents. And like I said, we're in conversations right now with AFSCME, you know, Unite Here has been out strong at, at, at many of the Freddie Gray protests over the last couple of weeks, which has been awesome. And so we see um, labor really standing with residents right now around this issue of inequality and are more to come. But there's definitely um, interest and a deep, deep um, commitment to this issue of addressing the inequality question in Baltimore. Just to conclude, I, I thought that was um, you know, a, a good point uh, to, to emphasize here because a lot of people will look at Baltimore right now and say, well, why isn't there any kind of positive political movement coming out of this? You know, people are just into destroying things. And so it's, um, it's good to know that there, there are grassroots channels for people to kind of express themselves politically. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think we see this because there's this chaos right now and there's a lot of people just kind of just the need to express and express this anger and, and, and to express just this, this passion for the city in, in all kinds of ways, whether there's a peace, there's a peace walk right now in East Baltimore and there's protests going on. Um, but there are lots of groups in this city that have been looking at these deep issues for a while, 
And hopefully this is a really a big crisis point where we're going to actually get to some results. And real resolve to deal with these issues in a deeper way. I mean, we've kind of put these issues aside for a long time. We'll keep closing rec centers. We'll keep closing down schools. We'll keep saying no to union jobs and, and yes to, to wealthy developers and their interests. And at some point, something's got to give. We've got to, we've got to deal with these issues and we've got to be brave enough to see that, you know, our city is better than this. And if we're going to, if we're going to move forward, we got to do it together. And I think we're seeing, I mean, I was out today and so many of our members were out just cleaning up and shaking hands with their neighbors and talking to people and hugging folks that they haven't met before and just talking about what's going on. And I think we're seeing a paradigm shift in the city. And this is, this could be a moment where we really, where, where we have to deal with these hard, hard truths and, and come out the other end stronger for it. That was Todd Cherkis of United Workers in Baltimore, and we will, of course, keep you posted on what's going on there and how it intersects with the movements that we cover. Last episode, I told you about the sudden closings of Walmart stores in five cities, among them Pico Rivera, California, where some of the Walmart workers' movement's first key actions have been held. This week, I spoke with Venanzi Luna, a worker leader who's been part of our Walmart since its very early days, participant in its very first strikes and in last year's dramatic sit-down strikes, and who was at work in the Pico store when her managers told them that they were all fired. She shares her story of organizing her store and what happened when they shut it down. So, yeah, so Jamie was just saying that you were involved in the strikes, the first strikes in 2012. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Uh, the first strike was exciting. Exciting, nervous, and um, a little bit, like, anxious, just because I never knew what it was to go on strike. There was never a strike for Walmart. It was unheard of. So yeah. we were, like, really nervous about it. At least I yeah. was. But you know what? It, it came out really good. Like, we took out 42, 43 associates in total. And then we had Southern California, like Seattle, Paramount, Lakewood, those surrounding us um, that also joined the strike. And um, there was a, a handful of supporters and a handful of, like, associates that joined the first strike. So it was, like, really awesome. And Right. Right. You didn't you didn't know how management was gonna gonna react to it or like how the associates were gonna react to it, but I think it was it was really emotional that we actually did it and we and we noticed that, you know, okay, we could do this, we could do a lot of things. And that just empowered us for us to continue and move this organization and like fight the battles that we have against um Walmart. I mean just retaliation in, in general, I think that's the most uh, important thing that people don't see behind closed doors. There's a lot of things that people don't see, and people hear a lot of rumors and stuff like that. But like I tell people, I go, those rumors are not just rumors. They're actually facts. It's yeah. just that people don't want to admit to them or are too afraid to admit to them. But it was awesome. It was, it was Knowing that, you know, your store was the first store that went on strike, and it would never have happened before, and Walmart never experienced the first strike, so they didn't know what to do. So it, it was amazing. It was exciting. It was a little bit of everything. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with our Walmart. I got involved with our Walmart in 2010. I believe I was one of the first associates that got signed up. 
I ended up meeting my organizer. Then um, she was actually related to my niece. That was her son. Um, so she, we ended up going for coffee, and like she was telling me about this organization they wanted to start. And I was like, okay, you need to stop. And she's like, excuse me? I was like, I'm sold. Let's, let's do this. She's like, for real? So I was like, yeah. Like, you're not afraid. I was like, well, I mean, fear is always going to be there. But if you don't take a stand on it, you're never going to know. So taking the first step of signing a card and, like, saying I want to part- I want to be part of this organization was a big step. Now trying to sign the entire store and, and yeah. have the other associates understand what this organization is about and, like, fighting retaliation, fighting discrimination, fighting everything we go through at Walmart wasn't easy. Trust me, it wasn't easy yeah. signing these associates. But what really helped me to sign these associates is that when the company ended up finding out, you know, about this organization and that I was part of it and, you know, that I was moving the store, they started retaliating against me. They started um, video recording me. Like, seeing everything I do, seeing who I talk to, seeing how long I take my lunches, like, every little thing, that every move I made, Walmart was on top of me, to the point where they were holding me accountable for stuff that I couldn't get done. Like, if they tell me, you know, you had three pallets, you need to get done in one hour, it's impossible. You know, stuff mm-hmm. like that, that they'll give you tasks on, and you can't get them done. They'll hold you accountable knowing that, you know, their way of thinking is if we hold her accountable and we give her three strikes, you know, she's not going to last a year. Well, when they gave me the last strike, um, I told them, I'm not going to sign your paper. I'm going to prove to you who Venancy is. I go, because you just messed with the wrong person. And I remember leaving, I, I remember leaving that office really mad. And I'm never going to forget this. And I was like, I'm not going to cry in front of you guys. I, met, I I I walked away. I cried in my car. And I was like, I can't believe they just did this to me. Somebody that was their it girl to go and get things done for you to hold me accountable. That means that you never cared about me. You never, you know, you never, basically you never care for me. So I remember going to my organizer and I was like, look, they just did this, this, and this. I go, somebody told him I was part of the organization, and this is what's happening. And it's like, oh, it's straight retaliation. So I remember right. us finding a paper for the label board. Right. And uh, I remember, like, my organizer turning it in, and she was just asking me, do you want to turn it in? I was like, no, I'm too afraid. I was really afraid. I was like, I didn't know what, what to, to expect. Uh, right. Once that paper was turned into my to my members of management, like, right away, like, HR was, the next day was looking for me, you know, let's sit down and talk, and I was like, excuse me, like, well, let's talk about your coaching, your your write-ups and stuff like that, and I go, no, now you want to talk about them? And, and I was like, it takes this paper, it takes a paper that says the labor board, I filed with the labor board for you guys to react, and, like, we got all my write-outs, um, taking care of the rumors in the store were that, you know, I was fired, that I I got fired for stealing chicken, which was hilarious. You know, they got rid of a, the union girl. But that actually motivated me and proved to the associates that knowing your rights and knowing the law 
helps because Walmart yeah. is not above the law. And yeah. and um, that's how I ended up finding my my store, by sharing my story. And I told them, like, if I could do this, you guys can do this. And and that actually helped me because it motivated me. The anger that I had inside me motivated me to show my associates that the law works. So that was before the first strike? Yeah, it was before the first strike. So tell me what it's been like working there since that first strike. It's been really good, people. I'm I'm amazed at how, like, negativity I, I get because they call me the union girl or, like, she's the girl that, you know, I, the, the way people required or, like, said about me was, like, oh, you know, if you have an issue, go talk to her, she'll let you know, or don't talk to that girl because, you know, she she's all about union and stuff like that. And, like, people got the bad rap about me. But then I how I explain to people, it's like, you know what, we're, we're not trying to close down Walmart. We're trying to make it better. We're trying to have them understand that, you know, they can't get away with, with retaliation, with discrimination, intimidation. I go, a lot of the stuff they do is not right. I go, and unfortunately, I go, me, as being a Latina, I don't know all my rights. I don't know what... In, you know, retaliation is, I go, until you experience it, then you know what it is. And I thank this organization because I learned a lot, a lot of my law and my rights, as, you know, my workers' rights. I didn't know any of that. Mm-hmm. And I teach that to my associates. These are your rights. And a lot of people right. are surprised that, you know, they don't know them. And we don't. I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't know them. You know, right. and, and I'm thankful that I know them now because now I get to teach other people about their rights. Were you part of the sit-down strikes that happened this fall? Yes, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I talked to, to another worker who was there, but tell me about that. It was awesome. It started at 10 o'clock in the morning, so it has never been done. It's, it's the first time that we did it, but it was exciting. That, I was really, really nervous because, not because I had to scream in front of the store, be loud, but because how things were going to be. So, because I am the Nancy and I'm well-known and I'm well-spoken out, I'm like, if I get caught trying to get in the, inside the store for people not to see me, like, it's not going to work. So, like, I'm literally wearing a hoodie, like, going undercover, which was exciting. Oh, my God, I have, like, this big smile on my face. <laughs> It was really exciting. We ended up going to Crenshaw, the store in in L.A., and that store is a three-story store. So everybody went in one more round. I was the last one to go in. So I had to make sure that everybody went in and went in without being noticed. And, yeah, everybody went in. So I was the last one, left the car running, went inside the mall, and then made my way to to Walmart and – I walked in with my hoodie on, and, like, I found no member of management. I was like, yes, I did it. <laughs> and so I was just trying to get myself to the front of the registers, looking around if people were, like, ready. So I, like, I literally, like, stand in the front and then yelled out, stand up. And, like, people were just, like, yeah. that was a call for us to, like, meet up in the front. And then, like, I said it, like, a few times. I was really nervous. I was only supposed to say it three times. I think I ended up saying it like six times. So finally everybody got there and then like the last word was sit down and everybody just sat down. 
we were in Crenshaw for like almost an hour, almost two hours. Management did not know what to do. So, I mean, just doing the first sit down um, for like almost two hours in Crenshaw was exciting. After that, we went, we took a break. We took a lunch and everything. Then we went back to like around six o'clock to in Pico. So in Pico right. Rivera, they were already expecting us. They had security everywhere. They had the front doors shut. They had like members of management in every door except TLE. So associates ended up going the same way we did it in Crenshaw, one by one, going in before I did. And um, I think I ended up going in through Tilly, and I remember doing the uh, same thing, the hoodie, and, you know, this was my store, so they knew me, so I had to be more careful. They ended up blocking, like, um, what's it? it's um, electronics with a pallet. So I ended up jumping a pallet to get through. I ended up getting in either way, so, you know, Right away, I went yeah. up to the front end. And as soon as my members of management saw me, because I took off the hood and so they were like, with a big shock because I got in. And I, I remember having my store manager behind me, and then I just, I, I was giving him my back when I took off my hoodie. And then same thing, you know, with a loud voice, just saying, stand up. And you see all these associates just come together and like literally, um, we took a sit right in front of the store. You, I had um, 20 different store managers and, like, shift managers there that weren't part of my store. They just came and volunteered to my store. And then I had the sheriff's department inside my store, and, and I had um, HR, the market office, corporate. They were all waiting for me. So just doing it and, like, having <laughs> – <laughs> and scaring my boss because I was really loud. And back of me was exciting because I was like, okay, you thought you were going to block me, but you, but I was able to get in. So now I'm going to show you how strong I am. And being there, we were there for like 45 minutes, to, close to an hour. And I remember customers reacting because, you know, we were just sitting there in silence. We, we made sure that we were four feet apart from each other so that customers could get around the store while we were sitting on the floor. I think I was most – we also did it in my store and, and, and like, proving to to my store managers that, look, all the retaliation you could do at me, at the end of the day, I could still come in here and create the first sit-down and throw it in your face that, you know, no matter how much, how much you want to put me down, I'm always going to stand up taller. So did you have any – any idea that they were going to close the store before they just made the announcement? No, I we I never knew they were gonna. That was that never actually crossed my mind. I'll be honest. I think it was a shock to me and like everybody else in my store that they would do this. Right. Really, it was like the biggest shock in the world. Yeah. Um. Tell me about were you at work when they made the announcement? Yeah, I had just came back from lunch, so our meeting was at 1 o'clock, which was mandatory. But there was a paper on top of our time clock, and, you know, they said, like, oh, you know, you know at 1 o'clock, you know, we're going to we have a mandatory meeting. I don't know what it's about. Nobody knew what it was about. So it was just, like, awkward until 1 o'clock in the afternoon that we went to the meeting. You know, our store manager basically told us they were shutting, they were shutting down the store for uh, plumbing issues. And it was going to take about six to a year to fix. 
and that, you know, they didn't know if, if they were going to reopen. They were just basically, you know, it was a big issue with the plumbing. They didn't want to close down the store, but they had no choice and that they basically told us they were going to try to transfer all of us, but there was no guarantees on transferring us. So basically, they, I go, so are we all fired? That was my first thing. And she's like, she's like, yeah, you guys are, you can all go home now. You know, if you guys want to go home, you guys are welcome to go home. And everybody was just like in shock because they were like, what? We're fired? Everybody was in shock. And not just in shock, but, like, people were, like, crying. Like, people that had been there for 20 years, they were, like, I remember one of the ladies, one of the maintenance ladies saying in Spanish how she was going to pay her rent. She's like, this is all I have. Like, I didn't care so much about me. I care about my associates, these older ladies that were crying and saying, how am I going to do this? Who's going to hire me at my age? That, like, literally broke my heart, like, Seeing people that I that I worked for so many so many years and like consider them family because this is where we spend most of our time. So when when they told you this, did you think that this had anything to do with the strikes? You know, my first reaction was not that. My first reaction was was are my associates okay? After, like, I got the, the issue and after I spoke to my associates, I was like, they're like, how can we do this? And I go, look, they can't do this. This is good. Like, this is, like, their way of, like, cleaning house. And I go, this has this has a smelly smell to this. Like, like this is not right, you know. Like, I didn't say it out loud to my associates, but I was just like, you know what? This is retaliation. So once you talk to organizers once you talk to people um how did you sort of come up with a plan of of what you were going to do um it's a lot i think we were all even the organizers were shocked even like my organizers like right away made a flyer like you know how can walmart give the associates a five-hour notice you know media knew about it like right there and then like it was all over media, it was all over Facebook, it was all over, you know, Basa, a lot of the associates that were off ended up finding out because Walmart didn't even notify them that the store was closing. So we had, we basically called each other and let, let each other know, like, look, the store's closing, you need to come and pick up your package. This is going on. So it was, it was hard, like, it was hard for, like, everybody. So now, I guess, what's going on? This happened on Monday. On Thursday, we went to a meeting, and basically, you know, they just gave they just gave us a sheet of paper, wrote down like the stores that we wanted to go to, and we were going to, we were going to have interviews and then go from there, and um, and have and see. There was no guarantee if we were going to be transferred. Basically, what they told us was if they had the position open for us. They say, like myself, that I'm a department manager, and they have right. a position open for the deli as a department manager. But it's only right. part-time, and I'm a full-time. I have the choice of either accepting it as a part-timer, but not as a full-time. And I was like, well, that's not transferring. That's giving me whatever you want. Because a transfer is I'm going in with my same benefits, with the same hours, you know, everything right. I have already. Not It's not what you want to give me. It's 
And they're like, well, it's up to you guys if you want to accept it or not, but we're just going to, you know, basically give you what there's available. But there's no guarantee that you're going to, that you're going to have a position available for you. So, I mean, I guess you guys filed um, a complaint about this, and um, do you know what the next steps are, if, if anything? Uh, I don't know yet. I mean, I know we're we're going to go to San Francisco to talk to the to Aida Alvarez, who sits on the board of Walmart, and ha- have her understand that, you know, because she is backed up by the Latino community, it's like, look, we're, I'm a Latina, and I don't appreciate being treated like this. Yeah. And, you you know, you representing the Latinos is not showing our support 100% because what you're doing yeah. is not right. And you have a say on on what goes down at Walmart. So, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, we're asking her to, like, look, end the retaliation, talk to Walmart, you know, reinstate all 530 associates that got terminated in Pico Rivera, but not just in Pico Rivera, but reinstate everybody that lost their jobs in the other stores because it's only fair. And that was Venanzi Luna of the Pico Rivera Walmart talking about her experience organizing there. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg! I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we read recently that we wish we had written but did not. So my pick for the week is from Slate. It is by Alexandra Robbins. It is called Doctors Throwing Fits. And uh, despite the whimsical name, it is actually talking about a very grim and often underreported uh, workplace issue. Uh, she wrote a book about nurses and the kinds of workplace culture issues that nurses run into. And uh, she talked about this sort of epidemic sexism and uh, gender discrimination that goes on day to day and is sort of embedded in the culture of the uh, medical profession. And she takes a very interesting kind of uh, you know, view of what it means when nurses are disempowered and degraded every day in the job. Not only does it stress out the nurses, but it also leads to a really toxic workplace atmosphere that might end up actually jeopardizing public health and putting um, people's health at risk. Because uh, when your boss, the doctor, can act with impunity and treat other workers like crap, including the um, supposedly subordinate medical professionals who are doing much of the frontline work in the medical profession, uh, then it really raises the risk of medical error as well as just, um, you know, just people taking unnecessary risks with public health. So um, she makes an interesting uh, argument for, you know, why nurses really need to be empowered in their job. And though we tend to have this virtuous image of nurses as sort of the Florence Nightingale types and the Mother Teresas who are there to like absorb all the woes of the world, um, they're actually absorbing a whole lot of mistreatment and uh, it, we let it go because we just assume that this is medical tradition and nurses have always sort of been, uh, you know, kind of the handmaidens to doctors. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, uh, I mean, anyone who's, uh, you know, seen uh, you know, the profession of nursing lately, they're increasingly providing extremely critical services, um, often in a time when access to medical services is increasingly scarce for people who can't afford it. And 
uh, Alexander Robbins doesn't talk about nurse organizing, but um, if you've been listening to our podcast, you would know that the nurses' unions are some of the most militant in the country, and you can really tell why. Um, They definitely see their labor conditions as necessary for uh, ensuring public health. So belabored listeners know that working time is a rather large obsession of mine. And so, of course, I said, arg, when my friend Nathan Schneider had a big cover story at The Nation about just that subject. Titled, Have We Seen the End of the Eight-Hour Day? It looks at the growing battle over scheduling happening in retail and other low-wage workers' movements. Um, He points out... Along with wages and conditions, hours used to be a basic concern in worker organizing. During the heyday of the struggle over hours in the century before World War II, the demand was always for fewer of them. The Lowell Mill girls agitated for a 10-hour day, and the Haymarket strikers wanted to get down to eight. But since the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 enshrined the 40-hour week, hours have tended to be taken for granted. Time was regularized and thus depoliticized. This is changing only because, in recent years, employers have entered a devastating new race to the bottom. Involuntary part-time is becoming the new norm for low-wage workers, together with schedules so unpredictable and varying that one can't easily get another job or go to school or be a reliable parent. Today's scheduling concerns, Nathan points out, have mostly been about getting more hours or keeping the ones you have. When I was in Seattle recently and spoke to workers who had won $15 an hour, they were mostly concerned now that their bosses might cut their time back to keep payroll in check. Flexibility, something that workers, particularly women, used to demand from the bosses, has now been turned against them, and they're expected to subordinate their entire lives to the boss and often to these computerized, high-tech scheduling systems, which we've talked about before on this show, um, that really, you know, they they treat workers as though they are also electronic machines uh, who have no lives outside of work. So... Any sort of battle over hours is always a battle over your right to your time, and I cannot stress this enough. We talk about work here, we value work here, we value workers here, but we also want to recognize that we are not just workers, we have lives outside of work, and we would like to probably, most of us would probably like to have more of a life outside of work. On that note, that is all for episode 76. You can, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, give us your stories if you work at a Walmart or another place that was unceremoniously closed, if you If you went on strike on May Day. If you went on strike on May Day or any other day this past week, um, if you're protesting in Baltimore, New York, Chicago, Ferguson, anywhere else against police brutality, and if you just want to say hello. Thank you, and we will be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored.